Hello, welcome to the Big Scuba Show. Hello, I'm Paul Rose and I'm on the Big Scuba Podcast with Gemma and Ian. Hello everybody, welcome back to The Big Scuba, this is Ian and with me on the, the world of Zoom is... Gemma, hello. Hello, yes, and uh, we are talking from our separate places to you, so <laughs> thank you very much for downloading The Big Scuba once again, episode 53. Three, yes, moving ahead. Um, coming up on The Big Scuba, we have... A few things coming up and a, another special guest. Mm -hmm. So we've got some messages. Some people have been, Gem, some people have been phoning the bat phone. The big all times of day, all times of day and night. And the, the phone's been glowing red. <laughs> Although it was quite fun teaching Scuba Honey how to actually use a proper dial phone. The look of mystery on her face was like, what do you do? You have to actually use your finger to dial around and I was like yeah. and then if you this, get it this, wrong you start way back from the beginning so. this this is how we all used to do it you know you put the dial around and then if you got it wrong which is off quite often you had to start all again yeah round you go you know and, uh, yeah so it's, it's quite it's quite fun having the old back phone. yeah and people are using it which is great they certainly are and we've and I want to say a uh, big very big thank you to our listener for leaving us messages and we've had some uh, really good messages so thank you and um you know want to say as well you know it's, it's not a one-stop shop the big scoop is not a one-stop shop do use us you know to mm. uh, help share anything and the bat phone is there for you to use if you want to get a shout out to somebody if you go and well, in the UK, we're all on, most of us are all under lockdown now, but so diving's kind of not really happening, but and, and it's winter. But if you are you know, somewhere else in the world where you can dive, let us know what you're up to and where you're diving and what you know, who you're with. What else have we been doing today in our in the Zoom world? We've been keeping up our dive fitness today, haven't we? We certainly have been, yeah. Thanks to our great friends over at the uh, great Yarmouth CrossFit who have started their own YouTube channel and you can go there to uh, look up the daily what the daily workout what <laughs> you know so it's really good shout out to Phil John and M yep and that's something that we'll be doing most days I think we certainly will um, be and uh, look out for on the social media of our times and what I've been up to as an AMRAP. Too many burpees today. Lots of burpees. <laughs> so we Lots did a uh, uh, hundred burpees. How many? Hundred. Two rounds. True. Yeah. Uh, no, more than that. Two rounds and forty-five. Right? Of course, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. hundred and fifty. You're selling yourself short there, Jim. Jim, Jim. So look out for that. Look out for on the YouTube channel. Look out for great Yarmouth CrossFit and uh, for their daily what you know it's brilliant and uh, helps keep us all motivated and fit. We've got to keep fit and healthy well that's the main thing so that's that so we've got some messages coming up we've got um, I think one text was as well to read out which I'll do that after the messages uh, we've also been doing a little bit of beach cleaning as well 
yes. for our daily exercise and uh, unbelievable amount of plastic waste. How much waste did we get? It was like nearly a kilogram, wasn't it? Yeah, of pure plastic. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So coming up as well, we've got a great guest with Paul Rose. Uh, he's also an explorer and TV personality and uh, presenter. And uh, so look out for uh, our chat with Paul. Yeah, so that'd be good. good. Yeah, good. So let's just dial into these messages of who's been calling the back phone and waking me up. Hello, caller. Please leave your message after the tone. Remember to leave your name and where you are calling from so that we may play it on the wireless. Thank you for calling. Please leave your message after the tone. Hi, this is Christina Zanato from the Bahamas. I just surfaced from a fantastic dive with my sharks. I came out to see how they're doing and verify everyone is healthy and well. And I had the opportunity to remove a couple of hooks. Hi there, my name's Ali Mitchell. I'm the founder and creator of Ocean Plastic Pots. We manufacture plant pots in Scotland from discarded rope and fishing net. Um, we also use beach plastic as well that's been collected during beach cleanup. I've been a commercial diver for the last 13 years. I trained in Fort William in the north of Scotland and then started my career diving on scuba equipment before progressing to surface supplied equipment and then into saturation diving, where you live in the diving chamber. Uh, I've worked all across Scotland, uh, most of Europe, and I've worked as far afield as the Ivory Coast, the Congo, uh, and Singapore as well. On the 23rd of March 2020, uh, a ship ran aground north of the Isle of Skye in Scotland, and it was carrying nearly 2,000 tonnes of a material called pelletised refuse-derived fuel, which is made up of predominantly shredded plastic and it's burnt in the concrete making process and it was coming from Ireland. The ship was leaving Ireland heading towards Germany and it hit a rocky outcrop at two o'clock in the morning and I was asked to join the salvage operation of this ship as a commercial diver. Uh, we spent six weeks emptying out the hold and diving in the shredded plastic and also surveying the hull of the ship. Four months earlier, uh, on the 2nd of December 2019, a 10-year-old sperm whale washed up weighing 20 tonnes, and it washed up on Luskintyre Beach in the Isle of Harris in the Outer Hebrides. Uh, and during its post-mortem, they discovered it had 100 kilos of fishing net and rope uh, and other plastic packaging and bags in its stomach. And these two events were the inspiration for me to start Ocean Plastic Pot. During the salvage of the cami, the ship, I collected some of the waste plastic material in my diving suit. And then I returned back to Glasgow where I live and set about trying to work out how to make a plant pot from this material. I initially invested in some small uh, manufacturing equipment and then from there we made a very small plant pot which we sold at food markets and, and, it, and it was well, very well received. So we invested in a further mould which was bigger uh, and we started selling them but we realised pretty quickly we'd reached the limits of what we could do with our own equipment. So we met with a product design company in Glasgow and then from there, we sourced a manufacturer in Scotland to make us a 13 centimetre traditionally shaped plant pot made in, from 100% rope and fishing net material. Uh, and we've started selling these online at www.oceanplasticpots.com. Thanks very much for taking the time to listen to me. End of messages. If you want to feature on the Big Scooper podcast, please tell us about what you are doing under the water or on the water 
send us a quick voice recording via WhatsApp. The number is plus four four seven eight one zero 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 five nine two four. Thank you. Well, that was brilliant. So thank you very much, everybody who uh, sent in your message. And Christina, I just want to add about the message that Christina left. We did actually follow up to Christina about and ask Christina roughly how many hooks, because I know Christina uh, keeps all the hooks that she takes mm. out of the show um, that she's uh, helped. To date, she's on 300 hooks. Yeah, so she's had her hand in 300 Sharp but you've got to remember, you know, not everybody would be able to do that. And Christina spent her whole life mm. understanding, spending time with them sharks. And yeah. Hence why she refers to herself as the shark listener. Mm. You know? yeah. And uh, that is very true. Big shout out to Christina and respect for that. Um, I will just read out one. We have had a, a text message as well, Jim. Okay, and, um, yeah, yeah, we've had a message from Darren, who's based in Kent. Hello there. Big show. Hello, Darren. And, uh, yeah. Great podcast. I listen to them all. Like Gemma, I'm new to diving. Qualified open water in January. And now with only 14 log dives. How many are you on, Jim? 18. 18. Based, he's based in Kent, looking to dive a lot more in 2021 aren't we all and he says happy new year to everybody so <laughs> great Darren, thank you very Darren. much and uh, you know we we feel your pain we want to be diving as well and uh, we all look forward to hopefully getting more diving. fingers crossed it's yeah. just around the corner it's not far yeah. to go we're we just got to get through these hopefully in sort of this next period and we'll be there yeah and it'll be warmer as well it will be warmer and hopefully this yeah Keep positive, keep your positive pants on, everybody. Won't be long before we're out in the water again. So, uh, yeah, that'd be brilliant. Talking about the water, Jen, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we want to just talk about as well was now we went on the beach, you know, under the whole lockdown rules and regulations, we're allowed to exercise and we did a little bit of walking. Yep, we did on our local uh, beach. On our local beach in the same area. And uh, while we were there, we picked up some plastic waste. Yeah, and we didn't really have any idea of how much we were going to see. Well, to be honest, I kind of started it because I saw something uh, on the ground. I was like, well, I'll just pick that up. Mm. You know, we, we actually went there to have a, a stroll and a walk. Yeah. And uh, I thought well, I'll take the metal detector and do that as we go. And uh, I've got no idea what I'm doing with metal detector. I'll just do it as we go. <laughs> you know and uh and i was like oh, i'll just pick that up oh i'll just pick that up as well mm. and i was like oh hang on i'll just pick that up and before you know it i started i picked all these cotton buds up yeah. so, there was uh, a lot of seaweed on there had been washed up and it was every time you moved the seaweed it was just revealing colored pieces of plastic unbelievable and yeah you know, and I know the ban in the UK on cotton buds and straw coming uh, this year, thank goodness. But seeing it for yourself on mm. the beaches, how they all lay there, um, what would you say? We, how many did we pick up? 50? Oh, at least, yeah. And we've got them all in a tub. You know, and um, it, it's unbelievable. And thank goodness the ban has. And, uh, you know, I, as I've mentioned before on previous episodes, I've picked up a 
crisp packet during work, mm. uh, more than one now, two or three now, which are 20 years old and they're still in mint condition. And you think, well, these cotton bud uh, straws and lollipops, uh, what do you call them? Straws? Sticks. 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 Yeah, How long are they going to? Yeah, and we did find um, a few straws as well, plastic straws. Yeah. Toothbrush. Toothbrush. Uh, gift wrap, balloon. Various line, fishing line, rope. Rope, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the bit I think that really got me um, as we were walking along, and it's really easy to pick up big bits. You can pick mm. them up, but they're easy. Um, but it gets really, really fiddly picking up the little bits and the trouble what what I, I'll tell you what I, I actually observed was you move the seaweed out yeah. and you can see how big bits of plastic have been bashed against the stones and the pebbles and they're now breaking down mm. and then those bits are broken so you, what you're getting left are these tiny tiny little yeah. bits which you know you can't pick them up you can barely see them they're just like a couple of millimeters you know if that across and it's yeah you can just see where it over time these might be 20 30 40 years old pieces of plastic but they've obviously been slowly broken down broken down yeah broken down. Mm-hmm. yeah just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there no they are there they're just too small for us to see and they're getting they're working their way into the uh, underneath all the pebbles and stuff mm-hmm. and eventually they're washing out into the sea again yeah and the cycle starts again you know and uh that was that's quite in fact uh scuba honey came with me yesterday and uh she was like really get and uh, can't believe all this stuff is on the beach mm. yeah and you know i've lived by the beach for you know 15 years and i've never seen that extent of plastic so whether it's due to us seeing all the seaweed and it was obviously all entangled within that but i think yeah. Well, i think it's probably there a lot well, it's there the all the time yeah yeah, yeah. just uh, obviously yeah just tangled up in all this yeah fresh seaweed and i think talking to some of the guests uh that we have you know who are very packed waste and marine life recycle uh, has made us conscious mm. hopefully it's made our listeners more, uh, as well and it does when you're you know if you are going to and i know there's a few uh, they do beach cleans as well you can do hashtag five minute beach clean you know yeah. and you can yeah. yeah, just five minutes. It's surprising just how much stuff you can pick up. Yeah, we have posted on our social media uh, sites so you can see the variety of things we collected. But we also got responses back from people, um, you know, saying that they were amazed and they'd found packaging all the way from Spain on the south coast. So yeah, yeah. and of course, one of our, our uh, callers on the back phone who makes uh, plant pots. Yeah, yeah. So it turns around that waste into something useful, which is brilliant. Yeah, exactly. There are positive ways that it can be dealt with. And, you know, we're going to have a go at doing something arty with our bits of plastic and make I think the biggest problem is always is, is that, okay, so you go <laughs> on a beach and you pick up the waste up. Mm. And what? Because just putting it into the recycling, we kind of just doesn't, it doesn't fix it. All it's doing is starting the whole cycle all over again because that will go to a landfill or that'll be on some kind of big industrial site where it's getting hand sifted and sorted out the wind blows it that's gone yeah and into you know, something else picks up you know and you got I, I, I said to you the other day it's almost it'd be really interesting in a quite a nerdy in my nerdy quite weird way 
of no, wondering how, how does a raw plug, you go to B&Q and the wholesale is another, and you buy a, a raw plug or a set of raw plugs. Or a take tile it home. spacer. We found those yeah. as well, didn't we? How does it go from the B&Q shop that you go and buy, you pick it up, you use it, then how does it end up on the beach and stuff? Mm. How does it do that? Because there's been a whole, there's been a whole uh, cycle. There's been a whole lifespan there somewhere. Yeah, and like we said yesterday, it had a value when somebody went and purchased it. And now, fact, but if anybody's got anything they want to add or tell us about their experiences, then yeah, contact us social media, send us an email, or call the big scuba back phone. Absolutely, and let us know uh, what perhaps what you what you picked up. Mm. We'll play it on the show so our guest now paul rose as you said is a big time explorer done loads of exciting stuff uh, man for the marine life and uh, tv presenter yes. and uh, we have a really good exciting chat with paul uh, so i think it's time to sit back and have a listen and have a chat with paul yeah so paul rose uh, welcome to the big scuba podcast it's uh, lovely to meet you lovely to see you so, um, so for our listeners, would you like to just give us a brief outline of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm Paul Rose and I'm the expedition leader for National Geographic, Pristine Seas. Uh, also do BBC broadcasting and um, spend as much time as I possibly can underwater. If we can start, just go through some of the questions. Uh, whereabouts are you based at the moment? I'm in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, I live in Windermere, the Lake District, most of the time. But we've wow. also got a place here in, in Geneva. Um, we, um, we've got family here too. So funnily enough, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be in England in a few weeks. And where I'm super keen to go is down to Chestle Cove. Yeah, I love that place. It's where I started yeah. diving. So I'm going to get down there as fast as I possibly can and, and make that wonderful shore dive, you know. So for people who don't know, what, what's the draw there? What's, what's the thing to go for for that? Well, for me, it was my first dive. I mean, it was Easter 1969. Um, it was sideways sleet uh, Easter Sunday, and I was on those pebbles <laughs> with the club, with the Ilford British Sub Aqua Club. And uh, in those days, you all made your own wetsuit. So I had my homemade wetsuit, you know, like a dress pattern that you cut out. Homemade? And glued together. And, um, <laughs> and then, you know, inevitably, you have to put tape on the on the seams, so, you know, I fairly predictably bought yellow tape a la Cousteau and, and I had my suit there and I had a lot of trouble cutting the hood and getting the hood right, I remember. I was on the beach trying to put the suit on without it ripping or coming apart. And, um, I'd worn it for snorkeling, but my first dive in the sea, so it felt like a very big moment. And all the, all the big lads in the club were running around with the engine and the fuel and putting the Zodiac in to launch it off the beach. And there was a lot going on. I was struggling around those pebbles. So flipping excited and then got in. So I got in and went, just made that little dive to go under. And obviously the suit, you know, it leaked like a servant. But <laughs> oh, man. the sea coming in, I should never forget as that sea came in, it was a, it was a green light. It was like, okay, you're in the, in the world's exciting, least explored ecosystem, you know. And yeah. I had an amazing, like, 25-minute dive, which I shall never forget. So anytime I think of diving, like now I've been out the water for a while or, you know, and I just think, oh, I need to get back in, then it's inevitably that um, Chestle Cove is what I think of. And just go in and 
see the cuttlefish and, and just be in there and, and maybe have a little adventure trying to get out if the, if the waves are dumping a bit and, and then have an amazing crab sandwich up at the cafe, you know. I want to go now. So what uh, made you start get scuba diving? What inspired you or was it just family thing? It was two things really. It was firstly being so terrible at, at school. I remember in those days, in the early days, you know, when I was like eight, 10 years old, um, I discovered that I loved being in the sea. So, I mean, we live, I grew up in Romford, Essex, and it's a hell of a long way from the wild places. It's very close to some wild places, but it's a long way from the natural <laughs> wild places. And, and it's a long way from the sea, as you know. So when we went to the coast for weekends or holidays, then getting in the sea was my draw. And I, I just loved it. I mean, I didn't know anything about it, you know. Um, um, I just swam and swam and swam. I could swim until I was the last one out of the water. Uh, yeah. I, would, I remember about 10, swimming on the south coast, I can't remember where, but I was off in the distance as I was you know, taken out in the current. And then swimming around in the gentle rollers and getting a thrill when I couldn't see the beach and momentarily, which way is it? And then swimming ashore and finding myself in a unrecognizable part of the beach. You know, what am I doing up here? And not so how do you have lessons? No, not understanding the way the currents worked or anything. And really? just, just swimming around. I could swim out there until I was completely numb uh, for a long time. And I still remember coming ashore and, and my mum just, you know, ready to murder me uh, regularly <laughs> for spending <laughs> too long. And then when I was about 11, um, you know, I developed into one of those kids. I, I was in a race to the bottom with a bunch of Herbert mates. I, was, I couldn't do school, you know, I was struggling with school, always had from day one, not very good at reading or understanding, learning through books and class systems and incredibly claustrophobic sitting in those classrooms. And I can still smell that, that uh, over here yeah. uh, next to the classroom. And I just wanted to be out. Um, I was good at being out of school. I was good at sports, but could not learn. I, I never really mm. learnt to learn. And at the same time, right at the same time on television was, you know, Jacques Cousteau with Calypso and his team of divers, Hans and Lottie Haas making those amazing documentaries. And, and you look back on Hans Huss's uh, grainy black and white photos and, and, and they're hellish dated. But, but yeah. now that whale shark picture of him, you know, is an amazing thing. And at the same time, of course, um, occasionally on television was, was Sea Hunt. And that yeah. was it, that was all I needed. You know, Mike Nelson, um, every week having tremendous testosterone-fueled um, adventures. Yeah. You know, saving, you yeah, he was saving pilots from crashed airplanes and, you know, men from flooded mines and all the beautiful women in the world wanted Mike to teach him a dive. And I thought, that's for me. <laughs> <laughs> so did you join a local club uh, anywhere you lived? I did, yeah, I did. I joined the Ilford Subacra Club and then also uh, went to the sessions at, at Walthamstow too. So I could do two sessions a week so I could hurry up and get yeah. in the water faster. So that was brilliant. Classic, you know, um, uh, in the pool, do all the swimming, all the snorkeling, twin hose regulator. Uh, and then the uh, logbook sessions were uh, inevitably uh, in a room next to the pool uh, or in the pub across the road, little blue book. and do anything. I, I was doing anything. I was helping the, the equipment officer and I was really happy to become the sort of informal assistant equipment officer. 
which meant looking after the boats and the motors and the compressor and stuff. I flipping loved it. So I was all those things before I was even having my first dive. I had to do my snorkel cover yeah. and all that. But yeah, I moved very quickly through and, and, and I should never forget that Easter uh, 1969. <laughs> Sounds memorable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what level of diving have you progressed up to to kind of this point in time? Have you done everything that you can or is there anything else that you want to do? I've pretty much done uh, levels of diving that get me places you know like um, when I was in the States I, I went to the States in 1975 and the I didn't realize how I could ever be a professional diver how do you become a professional diver how do you go from someone like me who was mad keen but to be a professional diver and I discovered the paddy system and I was living just north of Chicago and Ralph Erickson was running the uh, the one down in uh, Chicago so I went down there and took my instructor training. And it was, the, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. I mean, I didn't have much money at the time. We, we didn't have that kind of money, but it was a smart decision to become a professional instructor. And that has been the sort of ticket for, for my freedom for most of my life. I, I then became a qualified mountain guide as well, which meant I could leave the factory life behind. I was working for Johnson Outboard as a tool maker there in the States. And it meant I could leave that behind and I could run professional diving classes. And, and I found it a tremendous thing. I was teaching high schools, of course, um, uh, YMCA's local police department, then the Chicago police department, the underwater recovery teams. Um, and then I picked up the contract at the Great Lakes Naval Training Center. And that was a really big one. That was the making of me to become a true you know, professional instructor. And along with that, there were lots of courses I took to keep me going, you know, from cave diving to, to fast water rescue and ice diving and all the rest. So I did anything I could to keep my diving up. And then much later now, you know, I mean, we're all using um, nitrox and so there's all that going on. I've done quite a bit more cave diving and anything I can to keep uh, current and active. And I'm happy to say I've been diving 51 years and, and I'm still current and active. The only thing I haven't done is I, I'm not teaching status with Paddy anymore. You've got to keep teaching or attend some refreshers to make sure you've got all your standards and procedures mm. and stuff sorted out. So yeah. it, it hurts me that I'm still, I'm still paying my dues. I'm still a current instructor. <laughs> I'm very happy for that. But it does hurt that I'm not teaching status. I'm so busy. But I think um, now that with a different schedule going on, I might just next year go and get uh, my teaching status back. You know? That'd be cool. Well, that would yeah. be amazing. Great. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really would. Yeah. So I suppose 51 years diving, do you still log your calls and your dives? What's that? Do you still log your dives? Do you know uh, roughly uh, how many no, dives I've done? Much. I mean, I do when I'm um, on the um, science expeditions because we've got, um, you know, got a diving supervisor. And so it's really easy at the end of each day, you know, he comes by and says, okay, Paul, what have you done today? And I just say, I've done this, da -dun, da -dun, da -dun. yeah, and that's it. And then it goes in the, in the expedition log. Mm -hmm. So I've got that. And then at the end of the expedition, we've all got a record as what's been achieved. So, but I must say that, that I don't log my own divers. I haven't done so for many years. I found it a beautiful thing at the beginning. I used to love to have those things. But then I just, I just lost the habit of, um, but it's, I'll tell you what, it is nice to come across your old logbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did say. Um, so have you got any 
what advice um, would you give to, to someone like Gemma or another non-diver who's thinking about getting in the water? What sort of advice would you give to somebody like you know to maybe start? Well, absolutely, to get in and, and, and dive. You know, I mean, it sounds as if, you know, when people want to learn to dive, it's a great thing. And sometimes I've seen people who really don't have much of an affinity to the sea, but they've turned into really great, enthusiastic, safe divers. And other people who have got a massive affinity to the sea and love it, but they just can't clock the diving. And I don't, who knows? Is that because of the way it's been introduced? Mm-hmm. Or is it just one of those things where someone just says, you know what, the gear... Um, the whole business of the uh, of remembering what to do with your dive tables and your you know running the computer and all the rest of it, forget it. And sometimes scuba diving lessons have led to people being really great enthusiastic snorkelers or breath hold divers. You know, so you can't go wrong. You know, with learning to dive and see where it leads you. Um, I think it's a great thing. And that, it's so one of the things I often wonder is why we don't have in the education uh, proper skills like scuba diving. I, th- I think we're, we're crazy not to have mm. scuba diving and skiing and sailing and caving and climbing and, and camping in the curriculum. It's the best way to learn anything. And I've always thought yeah. that uh, I've given plenty of talks around the world that the best way to learn anything is scuba diving. Because if you want to learn about you know, geography or geology, or physiology, or human physiology, or all these other things, mathematics, then um, why not learn diving? So one great day, we're going to see all of these essential outdoor skills within uh, school curriculums as mandatory. <laughs> I think that would be amazing to see, actually. And maybe it's money. Maybe it's money. That's why it's not done. Or lack of imagination, more like. Yeah, yeah fingers yeah. crossed one day. Yeah, yeah the outdoor life. Yeah, we do a lot of youngsters a lot of good. I'm frozen, have I? Yeah. You're still there, Paul. I'm ah, here, yeah. I think you're back. Am I back? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Um, okay. So you've been fortunate to dive um, all these years. Now, you must have seen a lot of changes um, go through the... Uh, the diving world. What do you think is probably one of the, the biggest changes you've seen? Well, one of the first changes was that when once I became a diver, then, then I used to go into pubs and tell people I was a diver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I used to love that. I'd go in and, and, and just, just see people either I hadn't seen for a few weeks or brand new people, particularly girls, and, and, and do in the first sentence, I would somehow work out how to tell them that I was a diver. <laughs> Drop your fins by their feet or something. You know? I notice people don't do that so much anymore. That's one thing. But the second thing is, is, is that on the strength of that, more people are diving, which is a brilliant thing. More, it's, it's not unusual to find scuba divers in, in all walks of life. Um, but mostly, like many people, I've, I've seen, I'm, I'm lucky. I dive in places that most people never dive. You know, I dive up in the, in the Arctic. I dive in Antarctica. I dive in the the world's last wild places, truly pristine places mm-hmm. with our project Pristine Sea. But I do see a lot more rubbish and a lot less fish. I mean, obviously I dive places like the image behind me that are just amazing, you know, fully pristine with where we're not top of the food chain anymore. And it's, it's, it's a completely robust, beautiful system. But even then, when we take our samples in water that looks as clear as this, in every single water sample we take, 
we pick up uh, my, uh, nanoparticles, and that's so painful to do that. You know, you get the mm -hmm. you get the samples back to the lab, and and sure enough, they've got plastic within them, and that hurts. And as well as you know, most divers will have seen uh, you dive off beaches or anywhere really, and you're going to see you're going to see yeah. rubbish. So it's painful experience, but it does mean that we have a unique, meaningful, informed viewpoint. So our voices and our words back to uh, decision makers carries a lot of weight. Um, so yeah, so the more that we stand um, dripping wet and smelling of the sea in front of decision makers and tell them what's going on, the better. Yeah, it's true actually. And you know, uh, I think there's, uh, with us diving, um, you, you're seeing more with like, on the internet and different shows where plastic is now being found like in Mariana Trench. Um, and you know those sort of issues are now being highlighted a lot more than what they were say 10 20 years ago because because the technology has now come about made that more um, easier to tell everybody and shout about so yeah look, look what's going on and we none of us were aware really were we you know go back all those years ago Oh, yes. I mean, no idea. I mean, I was born in 1951 and in 1951, there was hardly any plastic in use uh, at all. And now if you look at that amazing graph of how much plastic has been produced uh, in, in, in my lifetime, for instance, and only about 8% of it has ever been reclaimed or recycled. And, and guess yeah. what the rest of it is? You know, it's, it's around all of us right now. Yeah. Yeah, and so one thing what, about diving, of course, it, you know, it takes you to powerful places. And when, when people return or have had experiences in powerful places, they can come back with a really informed opinion. And that's what carries weight. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, that is true. So you've got a love for the cold, the cold water. I do, yes. I've always liked the cold places. I, I think for me, the, you know, the ocean and the polar regions are, are very similar. They're very simple landscapes. Um, yeah. You know, in the polar regions, it, it's white and black and blue and gray, different shades, and, and tends to be a very simple landscape, whether that's um, at sea on the ice caps or even in the mountains, it's a simple polar landscape. I've always enjoyed that. Um, and similarly at sea, uh, you know, when you're at sea, the world is sort of blue, white, gray. Mm -hmm. um, and then underwater, it's more complex because of all the life. But I've always enjoyed that. Um, I find that very peaceful, very sent, gives me a lot of sense of freedom and, and energy. Um, so I like the big, big, wild open places. And, and along with that comes the cold. I like the cold. I've, I've been good in, 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 in polar regions and, and, uh, and also high in the mountains uh, in the temperate zone. So yeah, I'm, I'm good in the cold. I can look after myself. Um, the places I'm the coldest is, is, in, um, is in cities, you know, where I'm supposed to go to a meeting and I'm wearing urban clothing and everybody's in the, you know, um, sort of required rig of uh, suits and things like that. But it's just not warm enough. It's minus 15 and you're in Chicago and you're absolutely freezing to death. It's if, it's, if it's minus 40 and you're wearing the right gear, you're warm, you know. That is true. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because that's how you get over the cold, though, isn't it? You know, is wearing the right gear and um, a good size thick hood. Yeah, if you're wearing the right gear, you, you, you're absolutely fine. You know, so so it's it's funny to be um, to be in that situation where uh, you know I'm warm in the polar regions and cold in the city. Yeah. But does it worry you how um, 
now you know more countries are, are kind of starting to I wouldn't say fight over the land in the Antarctica, but they're they're exploring more, aren't they? And you know, as the search for oil and other resources, does it worry you about how things will proceed? Well, no, the Antarctic is managed through something called the Antarctic Treaty. So there is there is a moratorium on minerals exploration, and yeah. so all the countries that are working on science down there all work within the Antarctic Treaty. Similarly, tourist ships that come down and tourist projects that come down have to have their a permit issued by so, their foreign office. So people just can't arrive, and um, it means that when tourists come, they tend to be if they're on the ship up in the northern part of the peninsula. Occasionally, people come in and might do. Uh, a long ski journey or might climb something but they're tiny numbers really really mm. tiny numbers so it truly is a, a continent for science the white laboratory as we call it and um and i do welcome tourists i mean i remember at my old base at rotherham when if a, if a tourist ship arrived it was a great thing because we realized well these people are going to go back they'll have come to a powerful place it's a big period in their life yeah. and they're going to come back with the message of the value of our science that now we're we've got you know great uh, internet connection globally and you can actually sit in a tent in antarctica and post uh, your science results on on social media which is amazing <laughs> but in those days we couldn't so any messages that we could get out about the value of the science was essential so yeah i'm a big fan of polar tourism and it's being managed very well in antarctica uh, it's a, a muddle up in the arctic because um, some of the cruise ships that have that have gone, been going through the Northwest Passage and visiting those um, northern Inuit communities are a disaster. They're too big. You know, it's a, it, it, they're visit, visiting a, a community of a few hundred people. Here comes a ship with 4,000 on, you know, so, mm -hmm. so that's a disaster. And I always hope that one day it might be managed in a similar way to Antarctica. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good that um, Antarctica has been well managed and looked after because, you know, for us who are not involved in that, you know, you, you, you hear stories and there's always stuff in, the, stuff in the press and you think, you know, it's good to hear that it is being looked after for the future. Isn't yep, it? absolutely. Really They're right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so, do you have, um, obviously, UK diving is quite um, a thing at the moment because we can't travel. Um, so have you got any favourite places in the UK, obviously, apart from Chisel Beach? Yeah, well, Ch Chesil Beach really is my favourite. And I've always liked St. Abbs as well in Berwickshire. You know, St. Abbs really is, it's an amazing, you know, it started off as a voluntary marine reserve. It's small. It's easy to get in the water. You can, if you can't get in at St. Abbs Harbour or go out on the boat, you can go around to Eymouth, uh, just, just to the south of it. And if you can't get in there, you can go around to uh, Petticoat Wick, you know, around at St. Abbs Head. I did great diving, really great, easy diving with lots of life. So they really are my two favourite, like, go-to places. Go to Chesswell Cove, go up to St Abbs. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're the two for me. And, there's, of course, there's all the others around the coast, which I absolutely love. But <laughs> there's something about those two. Yeah, I think the UK has got an awful lot to yeah, shout out about at the moment. And I think, yeah, the next couple of months might be, yeah, a real turnaround. Exactly, and it's not that big, so it's pretty easy. If the if if the weather's blown out on one side, you can pretty much go to the other, or or go to a headland where you can dive in the lee or something. So, yeah, yeah I mean, UK diving, I, I'm itching to get back in the in. Yeah. So when you kind of have holidays for work 
pleasure. Do you prefer diving in like tropical waters or would you come back to the colder climes of the UK or one of the polar regions? It's a mixture for me. A lot depends on what I've recently been doing. I mean, if I've been in working in the polar regions, then naturally I think about, whoa, wouldn't it be great to dive in, in, in warm, clear water with no wetsuit on and just just lightweight gear and jump in. But then if I've been, if I've had a lot of time in, in warm, hot places, then I'll push for um, next trip being somewhere cold, just to get that lovely variation in. Yeah, so have you got any dive location that's kind of top of your list where you have been, or have you got places you still want to go to? I think for me, it will always be the Antarctic diving. I mean, it's a very unique place to be. Um, and I've worked there most years since, you know, 1990. I was the base commander for the British Antarctic Survey at Rothera Base for, for 10 years and, um, you know, helped open up the diving down the, the near shore marine biology work. So, you know, getting that laboratory established, getting the dive routine established with the diving officers and the team was, was a great thing. And every, every dive was a world's first. Diving in, the, in Antarctica, every dive, you know, was a world's first uh, on those times. And finding new species and species that were had never been described or seen before. It's very beautiful. And even a, a dive where it might, on the surface of it, appear to be a relatively boring science dive, but if the ice conditions are right, you'd hear whales on every one of those dives, even wow. though they were a long way away. And up in the Arctic, you know, diving under all that moving ice, and there's a sense of that. So the, the polar diving is so very special and in particular Antarctica, that even everywhere else I dive now does fall into that shadow of, of those Antarctic dives. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, and it's probably, you know, something a lot, well, you're very privileged to have, yeah, sort of have that kind of experience. I'm sure. Well, exactly, yeah, and I don't forget it either, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, so I, I was listening to um, Joe talking to you about the, um, you was in a tent, and the polar bear came after you? Yes, that's right. Up in the Arctic, uh, just uh, uh, three or four years ago, I was working on a Northwest Passage project. And it's a lively time of year, the Arctic spring up there, because the, as things slowly begin to warm, then the ice begins to ease a little bit. And in those tiny cracks, it means these enormous uh, city-sized icebergs that have been frozen in all winter can, be, can move and roll around they get unstable you see because the wind has eroded a lot of mass from the top but the right. underneath is still massive so as soon as it releases it wants to roll and then that helps to break up the ice so it's a wonderful powerful event the ice is breaking it's getting warm the the birds are coming ar around the tundra is coming to life and as the sea ice cracks form then uh the the uh narwhals you know the whales with a big long tusk Mm. running through there chasing fish they have to come up and breathe at the cracks so they're making a lot of noise communicating the cracks and what's going on in these enormous groups and they make so much noise under the ice that the seals their clicks they get disturbed with all their clicks so the seals come out and the polar bears are waiting at those cracks and go thank go thank you very much <laughs> so it's, teamwork it's an amazingly powerful thing and i was camping on the beach there frozen beach and um one night and it was very a beautiful night you know 24 hour daylight two in the morning warm uh, no wind maybe like zero minus one which was warm and i was just laying there 
naked in my sleeping bag with the sound white noise hitting the tent of light snow. And the white noise meant it masked um, the sound of a bear coming. And the next thing I knew, I had a, a 900 pound bear on me. It jumped <laughs> and all, all its sharp bits missed me. Um, but its right, ah. right front foreleg caught me here and here. And I woke up being pushed into the ground by this 900 pound uh, bear. <laughs> Was you screaming? Well, I woke up to hear my own breath, you know, woof, and um, sat up. The tent had collapsed and gone up, and there was all these big holes in the tent from its claws and snow coming in. And I just sat there silent, and I didn't, I was uncertain whether, I'd bumped into bears before when we were out working, but you know what you're doing, and there's a bear over there, there's a bear here, and you can fire a flare or bang some pots together or take a slightly different route, but it's, Quite a different thing to sit in that tent and feel like prey. So I, I decided just to keep quiet. I got my heart rate down, which was thumping. My heart was really thumping. I didn't want the bear to sense. So I got my heart and just sat there wondering where, where it was because I couldn't see it. And I carefully opened up very, very quietly the front of the tent and then opened up the fly sheet and was faced with these two enormous brown eyes staring at me. <laughs> We stared at each other for what felt like a long time, but it was only about 30 seconds. Then he walked off. And as he walked off, I went for my down coat and get organized. Um, and he heard the rustling and ran, ran at me at the tent. And I figured, well, that's it. I've had it. But then he just walked around the tent for 45 minutes and walked off onto the sea ice. <laughs> 45 minutes. I just had nothing yeah. you can do. No, that's some unique experience. <laughs> you knew he was in there. Didn't you? Yeah, well, they, yeah, of course, it smelled, it sensed me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's talk about um, dive kit for a little bit because you must have like a favorite uh, piece of dive kit, which is your, like your uh, essential thing to go to. What, you know, is a do you have like set computers for set for certain dives and you know how does it normally work when you when you go away is it all do you have like a box all right set up for all your cold diving kit i do i've got i've got a great uh, kit store with all my gear in so i can go from cold diving to to warm diving to everything else and yeah i mean for me uh, I, I love to wear wetsuits and and semi dry suits as often as i can i've always liked the simplicity of that so um, uh, wear that an awful lot. I use the Scuba Pro gear for that. And then for dry suits, uh, I've, I've used a lot of different dry suits, but the best ones I've ever found are the O3. O3 yeah. dry suits, absolutely fantastic things. And uh, I've got two of them, uh, one with dry gloves and one not. And I've also got the, um, I've treated myself, I've got the heated gloves and a heated vest as well. Ooh. Wow, so that's really something with a big battery, and that that helps. And then external battery, or yeah, big external battery, enormous, great thing. And um, then I tend to use uh, for, for for the BBC work, we're using full face masks for comms, but yeah. for the science work, I'm just using a normal half mask and open circuit scuba, um, yeah. and that I use just ordinary uh, good scuba pro gear, um, yeah. keeping it simple. And I, I like the scuba pro compass; it's really big. You know, it's, yeah. it's, got that, it's got that really big screen, which I absolutely love. And then for the rebreather, I'm using the AP uh, rebreather. Oh, right, um, yeah. And, and also uh, the Poseidon rebreather. So either one of those two, depending what, what I'm doing. Oh. So uh, try and keep it 
as simple as possible is my is my trick. But then you say keep it simple as possible, and you suddenly walk around my gear store and you go, "Blimey, that's a lot of gear." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you got to have it, and and um, so yeah, the right gear for the right the right job for me is what it's all about. And um, I love to have it. I like the gear. I absolutely love the yeah. gear. Um, in fact, when 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 we came back from the states in 1988, you know, moving back from the states, so what do you bring? You know, or, you know, bring all your all your personal gear and clothing and bicycles and and all that kind of stuff. And I was teaching diving, so I brought loads of diving gear back with me and climbing gear and skis and everything. And I came to this metal milk crate um, full of weights and weight belts. And of course, it you know it seemed ridiculous to to send them back to England, but I just couldn't part with them, so I sent them back. So it cost a bloody fortune to send this crate full of lead back to England, okay. uh, but I've still got it. And it's just something okay. about having that same stuff. Um, I know you mean. I do like the gear. I love the gear. Yeah. You, sound like you get attached to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's got stories to tell. And, and I, I, I do enjoy having the equipment. And can't throw any gear away. So there's a lot of, I've got a lot of, um, you know, knackered equipment around. But it's got so many stories to tell that it's still with me. <laughs> Good memories. Yeah. Yeah. What dive computer? What dive computer do you use? I use that Scuba Pro one, the nice big one. I've forgotten what it's called now. Yeah, uh, Uatec, and um, I like it. It's got great big numbers on it. Yeah, and I particularly like it. It's got such a very good compass. So if I'm busy, um, either with uh, a, a bit of filming or some science, then I don't have to worry too much about it. I can just look at that thing, and and it's got that lovely clear compass. So I like it. Yeah, it's a great one. Nice big numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it's nice having um, heated gloves, isn't it? Yeah, the heated gloves are excellent because yeah. even the ordinary dry gloves, you know, can still, you still get you very cold. In Antarctica, we used to wear really big single mitts like this, you know, just a big single mm. mitt, sort of eight yeah. mil. Um, but they're a bit clumsy. You get a bit limited as to what you can really do with them. So, yeah, the, the heated... Especially eight mil. Yeah, you can barely... Move. So I, I love the, um, you know... It, Dry gloves with the heated gloves inside are really quite the treat, you know. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about swapping over to uh, dry gloves. I've got an O3 suit as well and uh, love it. And um, I thought a couple of times about maybe going to a dry glove set setup, but I always think it must be. Doesn't it get a bit awkward? Not sometimes? at all. No, they're great. No? Yeah, really good. Very good. Good dexterity and everything. And yeah. Okay. That's yeah, good. I recommend it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got, That's good. Got all this to come. <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. I'm realizing the extent of the gear that you need. Yes, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've mentioned pristine seas. Can you tell us a bit more about that for people that haven't heard about it? Yeah, National Geographic Pristine Seas. I'm the expedition leader and um, it's it's a project that uh, a good friend of mine started, Dr. Enric Sala. He was a professor at Scripps University. And he felt that every time he wrote a science project, a science paper, he was writing the obituary for the ocean. There was no one offering any solution. So he came up with the idea of hunting for and exploring and helping protect the last wild places in the ocean. Why not go and find those places in the ocean that really are pristine, the truly mm -hmm. pristine areas? Um, so he started that project and had some good successes. And then as the project grew and took on a lot more targets, 
he asked if I would lead the So I do, and that's what we do. So we have now had uh, 30 expeditions. We've created 22 marine protected areas. Wow. And out of six and a half million square kilometers of the ocean that's protected, we've done six million. So we're a very high, we're a highly focused project. Um, one of the reasons for our success is because is of Emmerich's drive and the way he built it together. We're a big team in National View. And we're sort of upside down to a normal conservation project. Classically, people in the conservation business go somewhere, fall in love with it, spend a lot of energy there, and then work out what it might take to get it protected. And maybe, you know, not have any idea of the political process or whatever it might be. We do it upside down. We spend a lot of time on research and analysing all the scientific need around the world, then analyse and look at all of the political opportunity and match those together and put projects together, uh, you know, five, ten years ahead, with next year's being very detailed and mm -hmm. then the ten years one's been a bit more general. But we work on all of that analytics all of the time. So by the time I arrive with the team to lead the expedition, um, we already pretty much know that chances are that country will protect that region. And we do it with a big comprehensive science survey, and then we use um, film to tell the story. So, yeah. And in the last, um, it's been going eight years, we've uh, published 133 science papers. Wow. Wow. So it's a big organisation, and... Um, I'm in a unique position of leading the, the projects. Yeah. And so how, long the, how long do the expeditions last? It's a mixture, you know, Gemma, uh, anywhere between sort of three weeks and seven weeks, depending where we are. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. typically we try, have about four expeditions a year. Must be some major planning. <laughs> yeah. I'll say, yeah. And that planning has now got very complex because of COVID-19. And um, so now we, 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 we did, in the end, uh, cancel all of our plans for the rest of this year naturally and then we start again next year but it's still a bit variable because we've got the scientific need the political opportunity and now we've also got post-covid recovery you know yeah. is there going to be a vaccine how are those countries that we're working with managing their recovery and plus our journey through and where our ship comes from and all that so there's a lot more variables now in uh, getting started back up yeah. What's the closest, what you call pristine sea to the UK? How oh, well, it's some great stuff in Portugal. The Azores. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I led the Azores expedition and um, I tell you, it was fantastic. So Azores, anywhere like that, the Salvagens Islands in, in um, uh, which again is Portuguese waters. Go yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's yeah. It just shows you know. I, I'm sure people will think they're right the other side of the you know in a tropical place, but oh, no, uh, no. It's, and up in Norway, you know, any of the Norwegian coast. Yeah. Fantastic diving. Yeah. It's good that these places are being looked after, really, and uh, people like yourselves are, are taking focus onto it to make sure they are being looked after. Um, and you know, do you sort of look in? Do you sort of try and? merging with other organizations such as like um members from the tourist industry and because some of these areas are going to need the tourists to go to to um you know keep the locals and that employed well each country establishes its own protected area typically as part of its protection for its um exclusive economic zone so, for instance, the UK, uh, we're now at 30% of all our exclusive economic zones are protected. 
So that's been by using the UK Overseas Territories, part of the UK Blue Belt project. So yeah. um, I've led those expeditions. Pitcairn, Tristan de Kuna and Ascension Island are now all protected. Um, now, other countries will protect something. Let's just say um, Seychelles. I led that expedition. They've now protected 30% of their waters. Um, and that's partly financed by fishing, by organizing proper fishing licenses and eliminating all the money lost through illegal fishing. Mm. And partly, as you say, by ecotourism. You know, lots of these places, I mean, if you look at, say, Palau, they did, we did all the sums with Palau. As a, you know, a live shark is worth about a million dollars. A dead shark is worth about 50. So ecotourism model is, is a good, successful model for keeping places going. So each yeah. country has its own way of doing it. And we just work with the country to help make it happen. Typically, we fit in, fill in the last missing jigsaws of the protection. Maybe it's they need more of a science study or they've done some studies and need it expanded to tell the story and work out what should be protected. So every yeah. country does it slightly differently, but it's all under the same international legal framework of legally protected areas. Yeah. That's good because yeah, we've had um, like Reef World on, and uh, they do something similar where they, you know, get involved with the local government and uh, dive centres to um, get the dive centres in different parts of the world to um, enforce responsible diving, responsible tourism, um, all those things. Because that's that's getting it's right talking to the government. You, you need the people actually on the ground as well. To make sure they're doing their bit to clear up the litter, um, not knocking into coral, uh, you know, not chasing and altering behaviour of sharks and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, right, Ian. Uh, and I think the diving community, you know, I mean, the recreational diving community is a is a hugely influential group now. Yeah, it really is. And with all the other organisations that are all working together with us, and we're working with them, it's a it's a great sort of. Uh, in some cases, formal agreement, in some places, quite informal, but it's, it's all led locally and in particularly by, by the diving community. You know, we're a great group of people mm. and I think we're a, a great influential bunch. And the standards of um, understanding ocean conservation is really high within a diving community. We should all be pleased with that. Yeah. 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 It's amazing that um, like places like the Galapagos as well, uh, you know, because the way the virus has hit and us took everybody away, like the tourists, f away from that area. You know, we were talking to the Galapagos, uh, the guys from the Galapagos uh, project, uh, only a couple of weeks ago, and they were explaining, you know, they can't get out there and do their research. Um, you know, and us hit them um, quite hard. So it'd be good to see them getting back into the water after you know, everybody start moving on again after the virus. Um, so it's good that everybody's all sort of tying each up to, sort of in communication with everybody. And Well, it's a big risk. These, uh, you know, protection that is, that is based on ecotourism model is still a, a big risk because, you know, now people aren't traveling. Mm. Then those communities are beginning to bump along the bottom a bit and it's exposing the region that they are protecting. And so... Yeah. Um, I did hope that somehow we would find emergency funding coming from, you know, our fearless leaders to help protect some of these places. I think there's a great opportunity there for people to step up. Because if you, if, if you decide, let's say you were going to go to, to Palau and dive with the sharks this year and spend, say, £5,000 to do it, 
then it can't take much effort to work out how much the local rangers would normally get. And let's say that was a couple of hundred and send them a couple of hundred to keep life going. Or if you're going to go yeah. visit the gorillas in Rwanda, mm. um, you're not going. So maybe uh, if the money's still there to pay for it. So I think there's an opportunity there for people to show some leadership and um, begin to support these ecotourism models in the short term, but with some emergency funding. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, in terms of charities, you're a patron of the Depth Therapy uh, charities, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so I'm the you... Vice President of Depth Therapy, and I'm happy to be so. I'm pretty active with that lot and um, do anything I can to, to help. They're a great group, you know, absolutely no nonsense group. The idea is that you can um, help recovery from post traumatic stress disorder um, or and or big physical injuries by diving. Um, and we've seen some great results. The, the team are amazing. And um, yeah, I do any, anything I can to, to um, help them on, on their way. The only thing I haven't done is been on a, on a trip with them. So just <laughs> recently I promised to do a Red Sea trip with them. And I can't oh, wait, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, mostly we're working together to make it happen, but but uh, yeah, I reckon it's time for me to do a trip with him. I can't wait. How did you get involved? Pardon? How, how did you get involved? Um, well, I met Richard Cullen, who's the man who runs it. And yeah. um, Richard just asked if I could do some support. And I'd worked with disabled divers a lot in the States. And, but without any support of, a say, a disabled scuba diving association or anything like that. It was just yeah. me and my instructor team and people that that had disabilities and we would teach them to dive. And, um, and I found it rewarding and you could see that things would work and with a bit of jiggery pokery with the gear, um, you could overcome quite severe things. You know, even people with, yeah. with no legs, if you really worked out careful buoyancy routines, you could do well with. And, um, and I was entirely satisfying. And I remember uh, having a very funny experience teaching a whole class full of deaf people and, um, which I thought would be a piece of cake because you know that they were physically able, but they were deaf. And I and I soon learned um, that I had to learn some new signs. Um, obviously, we, are, we, are, we we this would be a regulator, this mask, and all that. But the the, the one I really had to learn was was no talking because when they're underwater, they weren't looking at me. They're all having an enormously great ordinary conversation down there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it must be oh, yeah, wow. incredibly rewarding. And we're talking to the guys in a couple of weeks, actually. We've got a, a session with them. So it'll be oh, good. Yeah, great to, you know, and get the, you know, the knowledge out there and to show that it, diving isn't for us all, you know, with fit and able. It's, it is out there for everybody. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, science and, you know, the expedition you're doing, it's, you know, it is available to everybody. And I think, you know, that's quite important. Yep, it is. Yep. And, and, and now with the benefit of social media, you know, when we're at sea, uh, we often pop up and we'll have a, a, an important discovery or something where we're not quite sure what it is and the science team, or then it's amazing to be able to get that out globally and using particularly, say, Joe Grabowski with Explore Classroom with thousands and thousands of uh, school kids yeah. uh, with yeah. the front line of the expedition, which is brilliant. Yeah. And to have children inspired by the underwater world, you know, that just kind of must set up the future of yeah. you know, scientists, explorers. It must be such a great feeling for yourself as well yeah. to have that. It's, it's great to be able to do it. And, um, 
And, you know, you, you know we, we are just seeing these tiny thumbnails, uh, but Joe is like this sort of international orchestra conductor. And you can hear him say, hello, hello, you know, Mrs. Smith in Kansas, you know, with, and then, you know, Mrs. Smith and Sam's got the people there ready, the kids ready to ask. And the very next one will be, will be you know, a, a class in England, and then it will be a class in Spain, if anywhere around the world, uh, South America, you name it. So it's a, it's a great uh, project, and I love that, uh, to be able to do that. You know, what a, you know, yeah. it feels like a responsibility, but it's also fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like life's fun. got to be done. Yeah. And the world is such a small place, I think, in, in really now, because the technology has made it more accessible, you know, and it's good that you can capture, as what Gemma was saying, you can capture children from a younger age and ignite that spark in them to say, right, science. And this is what I try and tell, try and, um, try and uh, talk with my my two children about science and get them into some science because I, I think when I was at school, I was kind of. I, I didn't really get into science. It wasn't until later I did. And that's like, oh, this is really amazing how there's so much stuff to learn. And there's so many things, especially with the sea. Um, you know, when we were speaking to the, the people, the Galapagos team, and um, they were telling us about there's so much they don't know still about the Welsh. And it's just like, wow, it's amazing. You know, some of the stories that they had. Um, and you think, wow, you know, if you can ignite these sparks with the with children and they're going to go on to be explorers of, you know, 10, 20 years time. And who knows where, what they're absolutely amazing. Well, as we say, you know, the people that want to be explorers, you've absolutely got to take on the ocean trigger because there's so much unknown. You know, we, we, we know you know, less than about 5% of the ocean. And yeah. uh, we, we have much better maps of the surface of, of Mars than we do of the deep ocean. So what's it like being in one of them subs? Yeah, good. I mean, the great thing with the submarine working is that, is that you can have a long time underwater. Um, there's no decompression. You can have proper conversation with the science team. And we can create, you know, good maps, good surveys, do really great work. And I think one of the most important things is we can take down with us decision making from the host country. So it's really something. It might be the Minister of the Environment down in their own waters for the first time. And they get the chance to experience how beautiful and do the, the classic thing. You, you can't protect what you don't love. So you can come in, be, wow, look where I am, fall in love with their own water and then come back with that powerful message for their team of decision makers. So it's one of the best investments we can do is get decision makers down in the sun. Yeah, that's good. What sort of music do you listen to while you're down there? Well, it depends, you know, inevitably yellow submarine, but, but um, <laughs> it depends what it is because if we're, if we're some of the surveys, uh, you got to keep your head on to quite a complex um, survey system, you know, so it all depends. You know. John Chatter, when he was on, uh, was telling us when he went to the, Titanic. He had. He was listening to Enya oh, in the yeah. submarine. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess well, anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. That must be. Um, do you get to put to, to a stage when something just comes looming out in the darkness to say hello to, you, and you're like, wow, it's got to be. But you but can't actually get in touch it. It depends. Sometimes we'll be, you know, I mean, just uh, two years ago in Malpelo in Colombian waters, and we we're sort of dive bombed. By, by the sharks, and of course that's really exciting, you know, why they're coming from lots of different directions, high speed, like sort of 
uh, jet fighters, you know, coming in. And other times the excitement will be, you know, you're with the scientist and it will be a, a tiny species that I can barely even work out what it is. And guess what? It's a small, relatively insignificant species in my life, but very uh, essential from scientific terms. It's never been seen there before, things like that. So, yeah, it depends what it is, you know. Um, we get a lot of excitement also, not just from the submarines, but from our drop cameras, our remote cameras. They've been yeah. to the bottom of the Mariana Trench and back. They're baited video cameras in a, in, a, in a big housing, big dome housing. And uh, right. more than half the time when they come up, we've got either a new species or the first record of something having... Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing that you still control like a sub, an unmanned submarine that depth. Yeah, it's not much control. We put it in and it sinks all the way to the bottom and stays yeah. there for a predetermined amount of time and then just releases and comes all the way to the surface. So it shows you how much there is to discover in the ocean when this static camera can discover so many things. Yeah. So do you think that we'll ever get to a stage where it's easier to get down there for man? I think so, yeah. I mean, the submarines are getting better. Uh, we're putting more time into them. And we're all learning that, that, that there's real value in getting uh, decision makers in. And that's the trick, isn't it? Because they get in, they fall in love with it, they understand what's going on, see the pressure. And um, yeah, so I think submarines, I'm, I'm with that, um, that we should put more time, energy, effort, getting more people in the sea. And uh, nothing yeah. wrong with getting them in submarine. Yeah, yeah. yeah that would definitely be the way, wouldn't it? Just to, to what's your what dive location is on your wish list, bucket list, and why? Chessel Cove. I haven't been there. That's where I started diving in 1969, 51 years ago. And I've been a bit dry lately because of the COVID-19. So out of all the places that I can go, it's going to be to Chessel Cove down at Portland. I can't wait. Perfect. <laughs> uh, and what's your favourite marine animal and why? Um, typically the clownfish, I think. I've always liked the clownfish. They have this <laughs> I idyllic lifestyle, you know, uh, sheltered within the, within the anemones. And uh, I've always liked clownfish. I think, you know, there's something about them. I, I have a, an affinity to those uh, little guys, I think. So if I come back as a fish, I'm very much hoping I'll be a clownfish. <laughs> we on. haven't had that <laughs> There you go. And um, if you could choose three people who you could dive with or snorkel, if they're non-divers, who can, and they can be from the history. Um, so could you name three people who you'd like to dive or snorkel with? I would go to, to, to one or two of the most fabulous places on earth. Really beautiful, beautiful dive. And the first person I would take in would be Donald Trump. Really? Just to... Good Just answer. in the hope that he would fall in love with one single element of nature, because he obviously doesn't understand nature, doesn't get it at all, and he's making horrific decisions that are affecting the whole planet. So I would uh, take him in a submarine or a dive or a snorkel or something to a I couple of absolutely that. blown away locations in the, in the hope that he might fall in love with some little part of nature to begin to ameliorate the horrific decisions he has made. Um, I would take, I would pick up uh, Fritjof Nansen, the famous uh, Norwegian polar explorer. Um, okay. He was a, an inspiration to me as a, as a kid and as an early explorer. He never was a diver, of course, it was a long time ago. Um, but I would love to take, he did a lot for me without knowing it. And I would, um, 
take him on a dive uh, for sure. Um, basically anywhere, because I know we'd have a, a fantastic, fantastic time. time together. And I'm missing my son at the moment. Him and his family live in Connecticut, and we've spent a lot of time diving together. He's been a diver since he was six, and he's now 40. Wow. So um, I haven't seen him for a little while. I'm busting for a dive with him as well. Oh, yeah. thank you. Where, where'd you go? Anywhere. I mean, uh, we've done quite a bit of diving all around the world. So uh, I'd, I'd probably, I'd probably take him somewhere warm and sunny. Seychelles, probably. We both dive there. Good answer. Good answer. What's your favourite um, piece of dive? Um, it, my favourite piece of dive kit is my O3 dry suit and my Scuba Pro jet fins. I like the old-fashioned Scuba Pro heavy jet. Yeah, I know. And uh, last question is: um, so, if you want to put a message out to the millions, and you've got um, a Board that you could put a quote, a message, a question out there, non-commercial. What would, what would be the message? What what would you say? I say get in the sea. Just you know, get your gear, get in the sea. You know, swimming, snorkeling, diving, anything. Get in the sea. Get in the sea. Brilliant. I like that. Excellent. Thank you very much. You're welcome, in. Thanks, Gemma. All right. Have a great day. Brilliant. Guys. See you later. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Paul. See you. Bye. And welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, he's just captivating. He's so enthusiastic about everything and positive. He certainly is. And uh, if you ever see Paul on future webinars, it's always good to dial in and take part and listen. So, uh, you know, Paul's got lots of experience uh, to share with everybody, to share with the class. So if you do get a chance, do do that. And thank you to Paul for agreeing to come on and spare us some of your time. Yeah, Thank you very much. Okay, so that's 53 on episode 54 for the new day, new year day episode. Jem, who's coming up? We have Stephen Wellen. We do, from the deeperblue.com website and podcast. Yeah. So uh, Steve has been in the industry and diving for many years and he was about in the mid 90s when he brought out his website when he was still at university yeah, when amazing. i was i was uh tripping the light fantastic in birmingham at the time as you do anyway let's move on from that <laughs> but he was there right from the early days of you know of the internet really let's yeah. face it you know and getting you know getting the word out there talking about the joys of diving so uh steve has been there and uh he's uh been through all the pitfalls of starting a website and a online business and yeah. lots to share and lots to talk about with that yeah yeah it's an interesting uh, chat with Stephen. it is let's say goodbye and we'll say thank you very much everybody for listening once more yeah so and we'll see you on the other side 2021 certainly will thanks for listening everybody see you all soon okay bye everyone